Welcome back to the Flat Out RC podcast, a podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis and drones. My name's Andrew Sill coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia. And a big thank you to all of you for joining me once again for this week's episode of the world's greatest RC flying podcast. I can't verify that, but anyway, you can always make the claim. Prove it to me that I'm not. Anyway. Thanks once again for joining me. Uh, good episode. Guy by the name of Damien Mould will be joining us. And Damien's uh, quite a well-known and re- very respected figure in the flying scene down here. Uh, and so we have a lot to talk about with Damien. And uh, let me tell you, you want to listen to this one. Uh, a, a lot of good tips from, a, a, as I said, a well-respected aero modeler. So stay tuned. Uh Before we get to that, let's have a look at what's been on my mind. Well, there's been a lot on my mind when it comes to aero modeling. Uh, If you haven't already seen my latest video, which is, um, well, actually might not be my latest video by the time this goes live because I've actually shot another video, but the Wang Jets event. Um, I did a a big video uh, at the Wang Jets event, and if you had a look at that, you probably saw the headline, I crashed my jet. That's right. I crashed my Skymaster Viper jet. Um, And I am going to do a air crash investigation video to share the story of the crash, to teach other people so they do not make the same mistake as me. Um, And so it's very disappointing. Uh, Anybody that's uh, crashed a model knows it's just annoying. Uh, Life always goes on. You know, when we fly model airplanes, we've got to be prepared to lose the model. And I'm always prepared to lose my models. And I've got this theory in life. Um, If I buy the model and I lose all of it, is my family going to miss out on anything? Are we going to go hungry? Are we going to miss the mortgage repayments or anything else? And fortunately, the answer is no. Um, it, but it's annoying. Uh, the upside is a new plane has been ordered, and uh, I'm not going to tell you too much about it because it is going to be a bit of a surprise. But um, I'm trying trying to make it a little bit special in my own kind of way. Uh, and uh, you will find out. But it could be six months away. The way things are going, manufacturing and then shipping and all that kind of stuff, it could be a while away. But anyway, I've got to get the turbine checked out. It uh, looks like it's okay. ECU's a bit munched, I think. Um, the FOD, the starter motor on the front of the jet cat, not looking healthy. But behind that, the expensive bit looks okay. But uh, we'll send it off to Germany to get checked out by jet cat and make sure it is all good. Uh, so, but the Wang Jets event was just a phenomenal event. It was so much fun. It's not just about the flying. I, I was thinking about what, what what do I love about the event? One, you're flying at a full-size airport. And I think it's really special when you've got that opportunity to fly at, a, at an airport with asphalt runways. Uh, you know, plenty of space, but it's just something about the, the ambiance, as they say, of the airport really attracts me. That's why I always say that I don't want to fly my jets at my local club. I prefer to fly them at a full-size airport at the uh, the jet events that get organised down here. Um, speaking of jet events, the, the, the VJAA, the Victorian Jet, I can never remember all these acronyms. There's so many of them. But the VJAA, they look after model jet flying here in um, in Australia, and oh, sorry, in Victoria where I live. And 
they did a wonderful job putting on that event. And and what I noticed is you had people like Paul McCarthy, the president, and Greg Escort. Um, they sacrifice their flying so that other people can go and have fun. Hey, can anyone hear that noise in the background? Can you hear that? That's interference. It comes through my microphone now and again. I do not know where it comes from, but I reckon someone's got like a CB radio. There is a helicopter going overhead, but I don't know where it's coming from there. Anyway, um, but uh, yeah, they did a wonderful job. They, sat, they they didn't do a lot of flying themselves because they were too focused on making sure everything was running smoothly and it ran smoothly. The other thing I love about it is the after-hours activity is that it's a weekend away uh, with, with um, like-minded individuals where we don't need to be anywhere else. So we can go out, have a nice meal, have a few drinks, have a bit of a chat uh, and you know, see if we can get into a bit of trouble. We didn't, but we had a few drinks, which was good. Uh, we're all in, interested now in, uh, we're intrigued and in love with the uh, the concept of a mini beer, which is a little shot of uh, liquor 43, I think it's called. 43, 53, 23, some number, with a bit of cream on top. So it looks like a, a beer, but it's like a, a sh- in a shot glass. Um, so we had a few of those, which were very nice. And... Um, I think that could become a staple at future Wang Jets events. Uh, other thing I love is best of the best Jets are there. Uh, great eye candy. lot to see. You're never bored. You know, F-111s, F-18s, um, A-10 Warthogs, um, sport jets, lots of sport jets. Uh, there's always some action happening. Um so yeah, really, really enjoyed it. So if you haven't, jump onto the Flat Out RC YouTube channel. Get into YouTube and type in Flat Space Out Space RC and you will see it. Um, it's the latest video. Or it might not be the latest video because I was at another event this weekend, last weekend, uh, which is was held at a Chuka, at the Chuka Moama Model Aero Club. It took me a long time to learn what it is because I just know it's a Chuka club. It's a Chuka Moama Model Aero Club. They had their annual fun fly event, which is always fun. Uh, to go to um, okay turnout, um, not massive numbers, but it's not too bad. You get plenty of flight time. And it was good to catch up with mates there and shot a video. So it should be up by now, actually. So that's another video for you to watch. Uh, speaking of videos, I've, I've really been thinking about what kind of videos I want to produce. Because uh, remember, I'm only doing this for fun. I'm not doing this for financial reasons, unless somebody wants to give me some money. I'm looking for sponsors. Uh yell out, throw some money my way, and I'll put it towards model aeroplanes. Uh, but um, one thing I've really enjoyed doing is just creating a piece of entertainment around model flying. Bit of fun. And I was, and most of the time you've seen these videos, I'm making fun of myself. So um, I don't mind being the butt of the joke if everybody else has a laugh at it. So uh, playing around with a few different concepts, but really having a lot of fun. So um, if you take a look at your Chuka video, yeah, it was, it was a whole bunch of fun. Um, and one of the things I, I'm mindful of is it's very hard to film model aeroplanes flying because um, often people fly very far away, very high, and they're very small in the sky and it's very hard for cameras to pick up on that kind of action. And, and I, I just start to get concerned. I don't know about everybody else out there, whether you like watching copious amounts of flying videos. And some people do. They get good, good views on uh, YouTube, but I just can't bring myself to do lengthy videos, collages of people flying. They needed and and you know, some people do a really good job at it. But personally I don't watch that kind of stuff anymore. 
because if I want to see planes flying, I'll go to the flying field or I'll go and fly my own planes. So anyway, playing around with my YouTube channel. Um, we'll try to get some more content happening. Been really, really busy as always, but managing to squeeze a few things in, having a bit of fun. guest time my favorite part of the podcast next week guest is a good guy by the name of damien mold damien uh comes from melbourne victoria he in australia uh that's if you're listening overseas you know where he's from and he in my mind he's always i've I've just met him but uh he's always been a well-respected person in the flying community nobody's ever said a bad word about Damien Mould. He's always a very knowledgeable kind of guy. He he follows, He's had a career in full-size flying, um, mainly helicopters, uh, some pretty cool helicopters, um, does fly full-size fixed wing as well, as you'll see, and has been involved in aero modeling for a long time and has some amazing planes. And he's a bit of an authority, a bit of a guy to go to for advice if you know when it comes to models and building and things like that and uh he actually his name was mentioned last week mark tatty mentioned his name in um, the podcast last week with mark um so i thought i saw him at wang Jess and said damien do you want to come on the podcast he said yes so let's just get into it here's my chat with damien mold well last week we had mark tatty on the flat out rc podcast and he mentioned the name damien mold and damien mold has been floating around in my head for a long time and i finally got the man damien mold on the podcast damien thanks for joining me thanks very much andrew yeah glad to be here well i was just saying to you off air how your name is held in high regard amongst the aero modeling community down here and so we're going to have a bit of a deep dive and the, the first there's always the starting point of this podcast damien is for you to tell everybody how did your journey in aero modeling begin okay um I guess I've been interested in aircraft generally from a very, very early age, um, you know, probably four or five years old. I always had a passion for, for aircraft or anything flying. Um, initially, the space program really grabbed my attention and um, evidently I stood up in grade prep when everybody said what they wanted to be when they grew up and I said I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, and I... Didn't actually end up becoming an astronaut, but um, I reckon I had a pretty sort of amazing career anyway in, in what I've done, which we'll get onto later on. But getting back to my modelling, I started modelling uh, at a pretty early age, probably 13 or 14. And um, in those days, there was no such thing as an ARF. You had to build the model. And my first model was a um, a Capella glider. Oh. You wanted the Aeroflight, Aeroflight, Aeroflight uh, Capella, exactly. And, what what uh, year is this, Damien? Put give us some context oh, of the era. Um, I'm going to say I was. I'm going to say uh, probably about 77, 1977, okay. 78, yeah. I reckon. Um, and I built a two-channel Capella glider, only to throw it off a hill and then try and work out how to fly it. Um, Obviously, with most models, it didn't didn't end all that well, um, but I kept persisting and I rebuilt it, and to the point where I could, you know, comfortably slope saw it um, in the end on light days at a at a, at a local um, slope that we had here in uh, in Lilydale, which is now built up with an estate, um, and then from there just got the bug, and uh, I, uh, I ended up building a happy forty. 
which was a, a pilot kit in those days, I think, and um, a lot of work, an OS motor on the front, and uh, we had great success. We built two of them at the same time, and um, it just basically continued from there, and that was sort of while I was still at school, and then um, I left school after doing year 11, and um, I started I started flying fixed wing and um, got through to um, private unrestricted fixed wing and then always had a love for helicopters. So decided to um, sort of branch off into the into the helicopter side of things and did my commercial helicopter license and started flying um, for a very large company uh, in my early 20s and um, very lucky that they gave me my first break and I gave them 27 years of service. Um, I was the longest serving pilot in Australia um, when I finally resigned from that company and I, I worked for a couple of other companies since and um, about 18 months ago I retired after 32 years of commercial flying. Damn. So I'm very privileged to fly some of the the biggest and best helicopters um, that, that a civilian can fly. Um, I finished my career on the Airbus H175. But we'll get back to modelling. I started uh, building bigger and better models. Um, obviously, having the the job and, you know, it was paying quite well and I was able to sort of, you know, get into some aerobatic models and um, always had a love of model helicopters. Um, I flew F3C for a little bit. I didn't get really heavily into the 3D side of things. I still fly um, F3C style of flying, so, um, you know, nice smooth aerobatics with, with a helicopter. Um, over the years, I think I've built, you know, well in excess of 200 models, um, some of them ARFs, some of them um, out of kits. I've never really been a scratch builder. Um, always like to work off, you know, plans with either a laser cut or a um, a CNC cut kit. Um, and my last project's been a, um, which has been the biggest build I've, I've ever done, which has been a half-scale Kristen Eagle. Um, and most people will know that I um, that I fly a full-size Kristen Eagle, um, of, of which I own. I'm a half-share with, with another mate in that and, um, he's an airline pilot, so uh, we fly the half the um, half scale as well as the full size. Um, the half scale hasn't done a lot of flying as yet, but it's got a 122cc DLE engine in it. Um, a massive build. The kit comes from Germany. It's you just get basically a 25 kilo box of wood, and um, it's all CNC cut. But um, yeah, it's a very extensive a build. Now I want to take yeah. you back a bit though, right? Because there's all these little things that people do along their journey which are quite interesting for us all to, to, to hear. And what I'm interested in to know is you went from the Capella glider, right? Yep. So, okay, how did you first see a model plane? Where did you see it? How did you find out about it? Um, that's a good point. We used to go down to flight line models in Ringwood. And I was always fascinated. So that's probably where I first got into it. And the guy that owned the shop at the time was Doug Dorat. Um, I think he's still around. I think he flies at PN Darks. He taught me to fly. Um, so the model club where I first saw models fly was 
down at the end of Victoria Road, which is the Lilydale Aeromodelers, which is about um, 10 minutes from where I live. So that's where I first um, saw models. Um, I didn't join that club initially. I was a member of the Upper Yarra Club, and that's where I sort of got taught to fly. So that's that was my first exposure to it, I guess, was was seeing them down at the Lilydale Model Club. Okay. So then after you got the Capella, yep. you said you bought a powered plane, you built the powered plane, right? Mm-hmm. Did you take it down to Lilydale? Did you join a club or did you go to the park or what was that? What, yeah, what did you I do? was taught to fly on that up at um, the Upper Yarra Club by Doug Dorat and um, um, it was fairly successful and I never had sort of any mishaps. Um, I probably had well over 100 flights on that model until the last flight of that model where I took off and um it flew off into the distance because someone forgot to pull up their aerial in the 36 megahertz days. I wonder who, who was that, I wonder. So I do make mistakes. <laughs> I've made a few. I've made a few and some are quite expensive. Uh, but the um, Okay, so then after the trainer days, right, yep. we're deep diving into these early days because I love the early days. Uh, yep. So then after the trainer, what did you get into? Like what were you being influenced by that was around you and where were you going in what direction? Probably the aerobatics. I built a fiberglass fuselage foam core wing aerobatic model. I'm going back right now. I think it was called a UFO and it had a 61, put a 61 Enya in it, in I think, or a 60 Enya. It might have been at the time. And um, that was that was fairly successful. And that sort of really whet my appetite for how good a model can fly, um, both both upright and inverted um, and all the stuff in between. So that wet my appetite. I then built a laser, a 94-stroke size laser out of a pilot kit. Uh, that was fabulous. What was the scheme on that? That was the blue scheme with the stars. I was going to say. It, like, yep, the blue and yellow. That was the colour to have, wasn't it, back then yep. with the lasers? Yeah. Absolutely. That uh, uh, that I, I still remember the first flight of that. That was at Lilydale, and I was so ecstatic with how it flew. I jumped in the car and couldn't wait to get home, tell mum and dad, and uh, I got booked for speeding on the way home. There you go. <laughs> Another memory. I only had two speeding fines in my life, and that was one of them. Oh, gee, see? Um, um, so I, I sold that model and, um, yeah, and then just sort of got on to – to sort of, I guess, bigger stuff, maybe not necessarily better, but bigger stuff. Um, and Still in the aerobatics sort of realm? Still or? in the aerobatics, got into some um, pattern competition flying um, at sort of a state level, um, did quite well at that. Um, also did quite well at uh, glider flying um, at, a, at the VMAA. Uh, the VARMS championships and stuff like that. So um, never been super competitive in the, I guess, in the aerobatics side of things. I always love a competition, but it was just more of sort of a fun thing for me. I just enjoy going out and flying models. These guys, the days or these days, the guys dedicate an enormous amount of time to to be very good at one discipline, which is, you know, Mainly pattern or you know large scale arrows, um, and I just I just don't have that time to to de- dedicate to the one style of flying. Plus, 
I, I tend to sort of, I get bored if I'm flying the one thing too long. Mm. So you've, you've, um, you know, you had a busy career as a, as a commercial pilot. Uh, did, did you always find time to go and fly or you had to sort of forego a bit of model flying for your full size? Yeah, look, there was, there was times when I had to give it up, um, completely. Um, I moved, uh, interstate, um, and flew in several different states, um, for extended periods, like, you know, a year or six months at a time. I'd normally have a helicopter with me, but in those days, the electric helicopters, um, weren't all that prolific. So it was, and they weren't, you know, they were NICADs and nickel metal hydrides. So I was still sticking with a glow powered, um, helicopter in those days. So it was quite difficult to sort of lug around, um, and then I worked overseas um, for a couple of years. I lived in Thailand, um, flying over there, flying offshore. So there was literally no uh, model flying at all in, in Thailand. There was nowhere to do it, um, one, and B, there was nowhere to buy spares or parts or anything like that. So I sort of basically gave it up for the two years that I was over there. I'd come back home each Christmas to firebomb on the Victorian firebombing contract, um, and that would give me three months back home. And I'd do quite a bit of modelling in that time because that was touring work. That was two weeks on, two weeks off. Um, and then after sort of, you know, living and doing the hard yards and and, and working in all the um, less than ideal places, um, I was able to get back into a touring position, which was basically um, two weeks on, two weeks off. And I did that for several years, which allowed a, a lot of modelling. Um and then in 2001, I started uh, my job as an air ambulance pilot at Bendigo and uh, that afforded me a lot of time both at work on standby time. I had a lovely setup in the hangar up there where I could build models. We were on call um, for immediate response, so you just had to make sure you didn't mix up a big batch of glue. Yeah. And uh, you inevitably got the, had the phone ring as soon as you did. So... That, uh, that allowed me to do a lot of building as well and um, it was a fabulous job, um, great people. And, uh, yeah, I did that for 10 years. And then for my basically my last 10 years of my career, I, um, I've been flying offshore out to the oil rigs and that's been touring work as well, two weeks on, two weeks off. So a lot of modelling in between. It's interesting. We, um, a couple of episodes back we had Gary Roosh on and Gary he was is um, Canadian and he – he comes down to Australia for the past oh, 16 or 17 summers on a contractor, you know, fly uh, air track, I think air tractor. And oh, yeah. and so he was, a, he was the Wang Jess last week and he, um, he does the same thing. He's, he's got basically an aeromodeling set up in Australia. So every time he comes back, he's got his gear and the models that he's working on and that kind of stuff. And uh, in his downtime, which is a lot of sitting around, he says, uh, he's building planes. So it's a, uh, it's amazing. I always amaze at the passion that we have for model aeroplanes, and it sort of doesn't it doesn't seem to die in a lot of people. You know, we you know we see a lot of people that go through lives and they say, "Oh yes, I used to do this and I used to do that," but with aero modelling, there's a lot of people that it just sticks and it's, it's definitely stuck with you throughout of throughout your life so far. So um, it's always good to yeah. see. Yeah, it has. I you know started at a very early age, and uh, I'm still very passionate about it, and um. I, you know, in the in the last, I guess, probably fifteen or twenty years, the jets have really, you know, come of age, and 
and that really appeals to me. I like I like the electronic side of things. I like the technical side of things, um, uh, and I also like building. You know, as Mark probably told you, I've built you know several models for those guys, and um, you know they're premium quality kits. They're, they're beautifully they're beautifully constructed, and they just need a you know a bit of finishing off and. Um, my philosophy with the building has always been keep it as simple as possible. Um, I see models that are just way, way too complicated with their their setup and their um, you know, the ancillary equipment and everything that they've got in it. And I just, to me, it's just keep it as simple as you can, keep the layout as simple as you can, and um, you know, not have any big unknowns there. Well, Mark mentioned um, in last week's podcast how I think you built his his big Sukhoi and he said one of the things that he learned from you is to keep the layout simple but also be mindful of access for maintenance, which I think is mm. is a great thing. What does that look like? If I looked inside one of your fuselages and say one of your jets, because we know there's lots yeah. of bits and bobs that go, go on to a jet more so than sometimes like even a gasser kind of thing. What does it actually like? Give us a visual of what that looks like when it comes to ease of maintenance and and um, that kind of approach. Yeah, look, I'm I'm not a big one for, and look, there's some models that look very very pretty inside. There's no doubt about that, and they're beautiful builders and all that sort of stuff. But there's a lot of stuff that's hidden, you know, and it's hidden out of the way. I'm sort of more of, okay, well, there's the receiver and there's the wires, and that wire goes to the receiver, and it's all neatly tied tied away and, and put in its place, but it's not hidden, you know. So you can see if there's something chafing or there's a fuel line come adrift or whatever. So to me, it's not about hiding the stuff. It's about sort of putting it in plain sight but making it as neat as possible. That's a, a very if, good If that point. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it does. But even being mindful of where you locate things for ease of, you know, componentry, you know, for ease of access. Oh, you know, absolutely. Um, there's one thing that I I absolutely detest in a model, and that's adding weight to get a model to balance. Um, I just hate it because it's just dead weight. Um, you know, some people have a kilo or two kilos or three kilos of lead in the nose of the aircraft. Um, that's just that's just waste. You know, and there's, look, there's some aircraft that you just simply can't get away from from that with and that would be the old warbirds you know that something had a v12 or a v10 up the front of it originally um and you're trying to make it as a model um it's going to need lead in the nose more than likely unless you put one very very heavy motor up there um but a jet on the other hand something like the su30 it's four meters long from a very early stage when i first got the model and got it on its legs i'd mapped out exactly where the components need to go and you know in a in a model that size i ended up i think in the end with about 300 grams of lead in 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 the nose which we will probably end up removing as we just get more flights on the model um so that's just planning you know that's that's just putting it and hanging it and 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 putting everything in there in, in situ and just basically saying, well, okay, well, this needs to go here, this needs to go there. No, this is where the batteries have to go or actually I can move them up the back or up the front and and uh, and get the model balanced and, you know, and get a, certainly a ballpark figure. It's no use building these beautiful models and then all of a sudden you realise, oh, it's actually really nose heavy. I'm going to have to put lead in the tail. 
you know, yeah. I've never had that. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. And when it comes to componentry in your models, yeah, again, what are you, what are you looking for? You know, is it uh, well, no reliability is um, always always a big thing, but um, oh, absolutely. And we can talk about brands and all that sort of stuff. I mean, everybody knows me, and they know what brand that I fly. Um, I'm very happy with it. Have been my entire life. Um, and that's 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 what I will stick with. If I'm building um, a big model, an expensive model, it gets the same brand servos as the same brand receiver as the same brand transmitter. I don't like mix and matching things. If um, you know, everybody knows me that I, I fly Futaba. I'm not saying it's better or worse than anything else, but if it's got a Futabas receiver in it, it's going to have Futaba servos. You'll get away with mix and matching and smaller models. And there's certainly other servos that are, you know, completely up to the task and do a great job. There's no doubt about that. And I use them also. But if it's a big, expensive model, and in particular the the big jets, we run the SBUS system. So the SBUS is is a Futaba protocol and the Futaba servos talk to the Futaba receiver via that. So I, I stick to the one brand in 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 the model. Um, batteries are neither here nor there, right? as long as they're just good quality. Um, and, you, and you look after them, they're put in storage charge and um, people probably saw me drop a battery in the bin the other day at, uh, at Wangaratta and that was just simply because it didn't come up to spec and it looked fine. It wasn't puffing or anything like that. I just, I just couldn't get a reasonable um, charge out of it, so it got dropped in the bin. Problem solved. What batteries are you using? Using LIFEs, LiPos, lithium ions? Yeah, um, mainly LiPos. Um, most of my systems are all on a on a two S LiPo system. Um, the, actually, the A ten Warthog that everybody saw at Wangaratta, it's got um, nickel metal hydrides, believe it or not, oh, really? to drive the yeah, to drive the engines. And the reason for that is that you can put an extra cell in here and there so instead of a six cell it's running a seven cell and that just ups the voltage that little bit for me because there's over two and a half meters of leads from the front of the model which is where the batteries are located to the engines and there's quite a quite a voltage and current drop over that distance um with a with a lipo and it just didn't have enough oomph to drive the igniters i'd i'd get sort of one failed start out of three and I played around with it a bit and worked out that a seven-cell nickel-metal hydride um, fit the bill. And I had plenty of uh, weight in the nose that was needed, so I simply filled it up with batteries and uh, took a bit of lead out. So I didn't have any weight penalty whatsoever going to nickel-metal hydrides. Uh, but they are considerably heavier than a LiPo, as everybody knows. That's right. Yeah. And... Um... Sort of another good question, more like that, that kind of thing. Oh, are you using like a, a power box or a, you know one of the smooth flight solutions, like a power distribution board in your in your planes in the in these big jets? Yep, um, the the stuff that I've used in the past, which is unfortunately not available anymore, is the the Robbie PSS two thousand and eighteen. It's quite a big board. Takes two receivers, best signal off both. It's got servo outputs, but the big benefit is that it's got big heavy-duty um, ports for SBUS. So 
to give you an example, my large-scale or half-scale um, turbine-powered glider, which has got 23-foot wingspan, has um, got five servos per wing and it only has one um, three-core cable run up the entire centre of that wing and each servo is pinged off that. So that's the SBUS system, whereas otherwise you'd have, you know, 15 cables to plug in at the wing route. And you might do that with a 15-pin plug or whatever. This has simply just got one three-pin plug, albeit very large. Yeah. Now, let's – you've talked about a few different models there, and I really want to get into them now. But let's – what does your hangar currently look like? And what models have you got sitting there? <laughs> okay, okay. Um, if there's if there's 100, don't give me the whole 100 list, right? I don't need the little no. foamies and everything. You know, what are some yep. of the notable models? Okay. Well, I've got, I got several little foamies that, that, that I fly on a, on a regular basis, um, which are a lot of fun. Uh, some of them are high speed and stuff like that. Um, but then you just step up into the, you know, the more serious stuff. Uh, one of the nicest flying models I've got is the Futaba Big Skyleaf. Um, quite a rare model. You'll you'll rarely you'll rarely see one. I doubt whether there's a dozen of them in Australia. Um, they're not available anymore, I believe. Um, it's basically a 50cc F3A model. So, yeah, rear exhaust, rear intake. Big tune pipe underneath it, a big model for it for the 55cc, and it's got a DLE in it. It's fabulous. It's my go-to if I'm going to fly on a really windy day or something like that, and I just want something to have some fun with. But yeah, it's just a giant pattern shift. So that's that's probably the smallest um, powered model that I've got as far as I see power. Um, you then step up. I'm just trying to think. I've got a Yak with a 250cc Moki radial in it. Um, that's a 42%. Um, made by AeroWorks, um, who are now out of business, unfortunately. That's, right. that's, that's that's a fabulous model. I've also got a 40% carbon cub from the same manufacturer, and that's got a flat twin 120cc in it. Um what else have we got? Then we can move into the jets, I guess. Um, everybody saw the A10. They saw the Avanti on the weekend um, and, and the Kangaroo, which is 25 years old. Um, yeah, that's my oldest jet currently. Um, and I've got a, the big uh, Skygate Hawk, which was um, one of the last models to ever come out of the Skygate factory before they went bust, and that was a very extensive build, about 700 hours in that. Um, you didn't take it to Wang Jets, did you? No, it's oh. been there several times, though, yeah. um, and it'll probably go to the next Mangalore day you know, if the weather's nice. Yeah, it's the same, basically the same size as the other big hawks that were flying there. Okay, um, yeah. Great model, incredibly light for its size. It weighs 19 kilos. Oh, gee. Um, yeah, that's, yes. that's, that is light for a big model. The, yeah. um, I, I, saw, I think I saw you fly the A-10. Yep. And it looked really nice, like a really nice flyer, especially on landing. Yeah. It was phenomenal. It's almost like it sunk nice and calmly yep. down to the deck. Yep. Yep. The first landing on uh, one of the flights, I got cut, cut a little bit short. I sort of I misjudged how good the or how strong the wind was. Um, 
on one of those days and then the Sunday where we had nil wind that's that's where it's in its element it's just it's just beautiful to fly it's it's a, it's a lovely lovely jet to fly you've still got to manage the energy it's only got two p80s in it now a lot of guys put 120s or 140s in them but mine's got a very very scale uh, power to weight ratio in in the a10 yeah and when it comes to flying these jets um they are quite different to fly than you know some of our aerobatic planes and things like that um when you're say flying your a10 what are you being mindful of um look i guess it's touch wood it's been flying for you know 21 22 years now so it's, it's one of the oldest jets out there um I've never had an engine failure with it. Um, I've had a couple of failed starts on the motors over the years, but they're still the original motors with the original bearings, and they're the first model of JetCat P80 that was ever released. Um, so in answer to your question, the thing I'm mindful of is an engine failure. And although it will fly well, I'm also fairly cautious of getting it caught in a situation where I'm slow. And so... You'll see me, I, I will go slow with the model and I'll do a very, very slow pass. I think I almost hovered it on one of those days when the wind was strong, but you'll see me do that fairly high. And um, and just the reason for that is if, if I do have an engine um, snuff out that I'll be able to just get the nose down, go to full power on the remaining engine and it should fly very, very comfortably on one engine. That, that's, that's, that's all I'm mindful of. It's, it's, it's got quite a bit of energy. Um, the model, you've got to be... Fairly well on the numbers for the for the approach. It's no use roaring around and coming on to final and realise that you're 20 or 30 kilometres an hour too fast because you just simply won't slow it up. The flaps are good, but they're not air brakes. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it's a bit to bit to uh, think of there. Now the Avanti. I was looking at them the other day. What size is your your? It's a acrylic Avanti. No, Krill um, Avanti, it's basically about the same size, but, yeah, this is a Sebart, the built-up wings and the fiberglass fuselage. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah, I did see it, blue, white and red one. Yep. Uh, what mode have you got in that? Just a JetCat P120, um, an and oldie as well, which is uh, which is going real well. I, th- I honestly think jet, the, the JetCat 120 is probably the best engine that they ever made. Um, not that they make a bad engine, but I just think it's – Probably one of the most reliable, and it seems to you know work the least for for getting the twelve kilos of thrust out of it. Whereas some of the others, I've got a JetCat P one eighty and my Big Hawk. Well, you know that it's it's working. You know, getting screwing eighteen kilos of, of thrust out of it. But the one twenty flies the Avanti beautifully. I've got um, three bit over three liters of fuel and nearly two liters of smoke um, on board. Okay. Um, so the model lands considerably different and to the way it takes off. You know, there's, you know, upwards of four kilos of, of weight differential between takeoff and landing. Yeah. It's always, it always baffles me. You know, when we have to um, uh, determine the CG of a model like that, we always do it with empty tanks. Yep. Um, but I've always, I don't know, you might be able to answer this question, but I've always thought that what happens if your tanks aren't situated near the CG kind of thing and you're carrying that bigger load, you're going to get a massive weight shift in the aeroplane if you're not right. How are you measuring your CG or, you know, 
am I wrong in my thinking or, or what? No, no, that's that's exactly right. I mean, most models these days, you know, come out of the manufacturer with these fuel tanks fairly close to the CNG. You know, some of those big jets are carrying upwards of eight, nine litres of fuel. So that's quite a big change. So you really want that on or near the CNG. But if you've got a model that's got a fuel tank either aft or forward, you want to you want to fill it or have it empty for the worst case scenario, and that, of course, is your rear rear most CFG. So, you know, if you want to you want to balance it in that situation, basically, um, okay, this is the absolute worst case scenario. Where's my CFG? I.e., is it is the tank full or is the tank empty? And that depends on the location of the tank, of course. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a very, very good point. I'm just sitting here taking it all in, Damien. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to flying models, you know, you, you've done a lot of flying and, and no doubt you've kept your eye or have you ever been an instructor at all or taught anyone to fly? I haven't been an instructor, but I've I've taught a lot of guys to fly. Um, models, I've taught several guys to fly model helicopters as well, I guess. I'm I'm fairly hard on them, and if my mates are listening to this, they'll be having a chuckle because they've seen me fire up at them. But at the end of the day, I want them all to, you know, have the the best experience and the safest flight um, possible. And I tend to sort of beat beat the stuff out of them, and until I get a result. And I I really like guys that that work hard at it, and I. I'm not so much critical of how perfect your loop is or how nice an axle your roll is. I get fairly critical of how somebody flies a circuit and their setup. And was the downwind the correct space out? Was it at the right height? Was the base turn nice and controlled? Was it a constant rate of descent to touchdown? All that sort of stuff, and that's what I tend to drum into the guys when we're flying jets. And a good landing starts on downwind, and and that's it in a nutshell. You know, if it's all going pear-shaped on downwind, well, there's not much use in turning base or final because it's just going to get worse. Um, a nice, constant attitude downwind, managing the speed well, Round the corner and just a nice constant rate of descent, and I drum that into the guys, and they'll all be laughing now because they can hear me shouting in their ear. <laughs> but it makes it makes a lot of sense uh, in that I'm a bit like you. I, I like to see um, precise flying in a kind of way or, or neat flying, and like you said, being able to just fly a circuit nice and smoothly. Like I've seen some of the best pilots in the world. Aerobatic pilots, freestyle pilots have got amazing skill. They make a circuit look good because there is no deviation. It is as neat as neat can be. And, uh, you know, I, I 100% agree. And, and your, your thoughts on what a good where, where a good landing starts, again, totally and utterly uh, agree. Now, let's just get into a little bit of the nitty-gritty. What are the complaints that you have when people are flying a circuit? That what do you you know what do you when do you start barking at the student? At you know what are they doing in the air that that causes you to bark at them? Um, 
<laughs> Excuse me. So just poor poor speed control. Um, and I guess the the biggest thing is just um, watching somebody fly and realizing that they're behind the model. The model's actually flying them, they're not flying the model. You know, and you'll see that on test flights as well, where guys become just overwhelmed. They've put an enormous amount of time and money into a model. And sometimes it's much it's much easier to, to let somebody else do the test flight that may be more experienced on that model type and can deal with an emergency as such and doesn't have that pressure of financial and 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 time that he's put into the model. Um, so you you'll see it in a in a circuit where somebody's just becoming quite overwhelmed with a the speed of it. Um, they've missed their cues for lining it up on the center line. Their base turns way too far out or way too close in. They're cramping themselves, and I just feel like sometimes running up and grabbing the transmitter and saying, "Just relax. It's all going to be okay. We're going to get this model. It's flying nice. We're just going to set it up so it's ready to land." You know, um, there was an incredibly good standard of flying at Wangaratta Jets this year, considering the conditions. I was really impressed with everybody that flew. I mean, it was windy, um, it was it was drizzly in, at times, but I was very impressed with the standard of flying and very very few, if any, sort of you know bad landing mistakes. Yeah, I was. I spent a bit of time out in the flight line. Uh, the thing that though did surprise me a little bit with the flying is, especially when there were multiple jets up in the air, which sort of explains a bit of it, I suppose, some massive circuits being flown. I'm talking models way out in the yonder. And personally, I get uneasy when they're flying that 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 far away. I'm talking miles away. Um, where do you Where do you like to, you know, what's your happy flying area, your box that you're flying? Well, for me, simply, you know, and we drum this in with full-size flying, if at any stage the engine stops, can you make it back to the field? You know, if you're in the circuit and your engine stops and you can't make it back to the field, then your circuit's too big. And that's it. That's it in a nutshell. You know, these guys, some of these guys that fly very, very big circuits, I'd, I'd just like to... Say to them, so if the motor stopped there, what are you going to do? Because on that windy day, some of those models wouldn't have had a hope of making it back to the circuit. Um, still a great standard of flying, don't get me wrong, but a big circuit on a windy day will catch you out. Yeah. Um, and, you know, everybody knows recently, I, I guess I lost, you know, one of my one of my prize models, which was the PC-21 with a gearbox seizure. And um, it was in a position where I was, you know, very high speed sort of downwind close into the field and the motor seized. And it, uh, I just simply just couldn't get it around the corner and, and pull it up in time before it, before it dropped a, a wing. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately it just, it, it didn't make it home that night. <laughs> so um, I know what that's like, Damien. Yes, like. yes, you do, Andrew. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not mentioning what happened because I'm, I'm working on a video from Wang Jets, 
and there's a reveal in there. But I think it should be out by the time this podcast comes out. So stay tuned, people, for next week's podcast where I give you a full rundown of what happened at the Wang Jets event. Because uh, I've actually worked it out. I'll tell you off air what, what I did because uh, I've actually right. debugged it. Uh, okay. Anyway, there's some really, really good tips there. Um, it was interesting, Michael Timms, who you may know that flies jets. Yep. He's yep. a full-size pilot. And he's one of his recommendations, he said, when you come flying a jet where you're trying to manage the speed, is he does quite an arcing turn onto that final approach. and Because yep. he says when you can see the plane on its side, um, you can actually, you know, the more you can see the plane's sort of profile, you can judge the speed a lot better. When yep. you're coming into land, what are you thinking of when when it comes to managing the speed? Because that's what we know is, you know, everybody's bugbear when flying jets is, am I bringing, am yeah. I install the thing? I like to, you know, I like to basically have everything configured by late downwind. Um, I don't like throwing flaps on, on final and stuff like that. It depends on the model, of course, but you'll find with most of my flying on most of the days, you know, with say, you know, five to 10 knots of wind, I will be fully configured before I turn base, i.e. gear down and flaps set for landing. So that way I can manage the speed all the way in. You start throwing flaps down or speed brakes or whatever on short final and it can end up sort of all over the place. One exception to that is the MiG-15, which I fly for a friend of mine. Um, and occasionally you'll need speed brakes on final because it's a very slippery little model and it's got two big brakes that pop out, you know, just underneath the, the um, horizontal stabiliser. And uh, they're very, very effective. So that's, that's sort of the only exception really. But most of my flying is done and it's fully configured on base. And even if it's an aerobatic model that simply hasn't got flaps or speed brakes or landing gear or, you know, retractable landing gear, it's still in the same position on late downwind and the same speed as I want to land it at and come round on that base turn and a nice big arcing turn. I, I prefer the, the, you know, the constant bank constant rate of descent turn on to final. I think it's a lot easier to manage. Yeah. I saw some people, you know, have a very long approach, you know, and, and some of them, you know, there was a Concorde flying. Uh, yeah. And it was a beautiful model to watch. It was coming on to land and it was pretty far out. I couldn't see it. I could not see the model. I totally, I was, okay, I was trying to film the thing, but I was still looking um, and I could not see it because this thing is, pretty much white and like a very sleek profile on grey sky, I lost it. And it was still, you know, miles away from the pilot kind of thing. And I thought, gee, this is a bit scary. Fortunately, good pilot, brought it in, no problems whatsoever. Um, yeah, that, those long approaches, I sort of get a bit, you know, get a bit scary. Well, I, I've got a philosophy of when I fly, when I land a plane, I want that plane to land before it reaches my feet. So imagine, you know, you're looking at the plane coming from yep. your left. I don't want the wheels touching down after my body. And my theory behind that is when the plane starts to fly past you, you start getting wary of the end of the runway and the nerves start and the pressure starts to build up. And I've seen a lot of people crash into things. Yep. Just at Shepherd and Mammoth, planes landing and then running into a star picket. You know, because yeah. everyone gets nervous. Oh, it's coming, and and their commitment to land gets stronger and stronger the further it gets down. 
do you share my sentiment or where are you aiming for the, for the wheels? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, as per the, you know, we're standing normally midway down the runway when we fly jets, midway down the, the runway that we're going to land on. So let's just picture it as, you know, we've got 100 metres either side of us where we're standing. But we're standing in the middle of the runway. So you should really be landing or, or attempting to land, say, 50 metres um, to your left or right, depending on which end you're approaching from. So the touching down point should be 50 metres to your right or left, depending on which way you're coming. So, yeah, I, I share that absolutely, you know. There's no use in having a model fly past you at 10 foot in the air thinking, well, when's this going to land? You know, it should be on the ground well and truly before it gets to you. Yeah, yep. That's what I always aim for, and I'm ready to go around. I've got no shame in going around. Good old Macklin Dodd, big shout-out to Macklin Dodd. He's a great kid, and he did a number of go-arounds on his jet, but he was composed, and then that when he finally got on the ground, it was a pearler of a landing. And I always say to people, there's no shame in going around. Like in your in your full-size flying career, how many go-arounds have you done? Um, I've probably done more go-arounds in the Kristen Eagle um, <laughs> than, than, than any other aircraft I've flown, especially in the early days when we were we were training um, in the aircraft. I, it, you know, I've in excess of ten thousand hours flying, and in mainly in helicopters, um, probably got six or seven hundred hours in fixed wing aircraft, but. It's. I still needed sort of at least I think it was four hours to go solo in the Kristen Eagle. Um, I had a great instructor, and um, there were several go arounds on that where I just I just wasn't comfortable at all. But since we've had the aircraft base locally out here, um, I've had maybe maybe in thirty flights I've had two or three go arounds just because it just wasn't set up correctly. Well, they, look, they are a tricky plane to get on the ground. Yes, they are. Because <laughs> it's basically, it's pits, isn't it, pretty much? Yeah, basically, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. my mate Edo, yeah. rest his soul, he used to say to me, oh, Andrew, I can't see outside the plane. You can't see. I said, well, how do you know you're on the runway? He goes, I look to my left and I see if there's asphalt underneath me and I'm looking at the at the grass on the side and trying to gauge whether I'm in the middle of the runway and then I'm trying to stop it from bouncing. Um but uh, he did reasonably okay. But I think he had a few go-arounds as well. But um, let's let's talk about some of the full-size stuff because I'm really interested. Let's let's talk about the Crimson Eagle. What what's the history of that plane, and you know it, from where you found it, why you bought it? Um, well, my mate and myself, that you know, we've been great mates for for many years. We've we've always had a love of Crimson Eagles. I've had several models of Crimson Eagles. I had the great planes and a couple of little EZs and stuff like that, and. He's currently got the 50cc Kristen Eagle, which I refurbed for him. And we always sort of said to ourselves, we were looking on the net and stuff like that. We always sort of said to ourselves, oh, look, you know, wouldn't it be nice if one came up one day? And we were following this girl in the States called Nikki. And um, she's she's quite popular on YouTube. If you dial up Kristen Eagle, you'll see Nikki. Um, and uh, she gives a nice interview. Not a lot of flying in the interview, but that's our aircraft. Um, so we'd been watching her and watching the video and sort of getting a bit interested and lo and behold, um, a week or so later, it got listed for sale. And that was in Florida. We bought the aircraft unseen, um, <laughs> which was a big gamble. They're all home-built, Kristen Eagle. There was no factory-built Kristen Eagles in those days. 
Um, you can get a factory built Crystal Eagle now, but you'll need to take out a second mortgage on your home to afford it. Um, and it came up for sale. We spoke to her several times. We got an independent assessment of the aircraft and um, put it in a container and shipped it out. Um, still unseen until we opened the container down in West Melbourne and um, very, very pleasantly surprised about how good the condition was of the aircraft. And um, then it was a matter of getting it all assembled and um, it's uh, we got Jared Lappin down at La Trobe Valley to do all the test flying on it and then um, we both uh, got ourselves checked out on it. Paddy's a very experienced, the other partners are very experienced. The airline pilot got a lot of time in fixed wing, um, 15,000 odd hours. So, oh, Pat, Paddy did um, one. Yeah. Oh, yep. Yep. My brother knows yeah. him. Yeah. So um, to, apparently, Paddy Devlin went to school with my brother, I think. Probably is that was, right? Yeah. My brother's a pilot. He's an airline pilot. Knows Paddy from many years ago. Okay. Everybody knows Paddy. Yeah. He's had a few <laughs> different planes, though. I think he had a Cirrus at one point, didn't he? Or. He did have a Cirrus. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, he's currently um, he's in a share of a Bonanza as well. Okay, so yeah. Um, so yeah, we've got a half share, half each in the uh, in the Crystal Eagle, which is based at Lidl Airport. And um, yeah, we, we sort of couldn't wait to you know go solo in it, I guess, and when the time was right, and and really start consolidating on the aircraft. I did a lot more flying in it over the year than what Paddy did because he's just too busy with work, but. Um, he's hoping to do a bit more. And had you flown aerobatic planes before getting the Christmas Eagle? Christmas Eagle? Had I? Yeah. Um, I'd uh, I'd only ever uh, flown a decathlon a little bit. And to be quite honest, the aerobatics wasn't a big thing for me in the actual purchase of the aircraft. Um, it's just a really, it's a really, really nice thing to fly. Um, the aerobatics, of course, you know, um, are fabulous also in the aircraft, but to take somebody up for a fly and not do an aerobatic, you won't come down disappointed. Mm. So it's a two-seater? Two-seater. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah. But you will throw in a few loops and rolls, won't you? Well, yeah. It depends, you know. It depends how many uh, $100 notes are flashed at me. <laughs> well, didn't John Denver have a Kristen Eagle? I'm not sure if he had a Kristen Eagle. He may have done. I thought he died in one. No, he didn't die oh, in one. He, he died, died in, a, in a very easy. That's right. Flicking the yeah. flicking over and the tank. Turning, turning around to it to um, adjust the fuel cock. That's right. In it and got distracted. Yeah. So you're flying off the grass at Lilydale. You're gonna are they gonna ask you to fly it at the air show? Which air show are we talking the about? Lilydale air show. Oh, is it on? I don't know, but normally they have an air show there, don't they? Yeah, they do. Yeah. Um yeah, well, yes. In actual fact, yeah, the, the Kristen will probably be demoed at the air show and I'll I'll put my house scale Kristen alongside it, which is you know, built it to exactly the same um colour scheme. Yeah, that'd be awesome. That's a good plane. That'd be nice. And um, so you started life flying fixed wing, didn't you? I did, yep. Um, as, as soon as I, I got my PPL, I basically transferred to helicopters. Um, that being said, um, I had all my exams. I'd already done all my exams for heli flying before I even stepped foot inside the um, 
professional helicopters down at Moorabbin to sort of do my training. So they were they were sort of pretty happy, you know, that they don't have to put the theory into me and basically just briefings and go out and fly. Yeah. And how did you find that transition from, from fixed wing to, to heli? Oh, for me, it just, it felt very natural. You know, it was, you know, it just, I, I love helicopters. I love what they can do. And um, I've had a fantastic career um, flying them. So for me, you know, in those days, you could go solo when you were ready to go solo. These days there's, um, you know, our requirements for insurance reasons and stuff like that. Um, uh, so I, I, I went I went solo, I think, in eight or nine hours or something like that. I think these days it's a minimum of 10, 10 or 12 hours or something like that. But, yeah, the cost of um, helicopter training these days is prohibitive. Yeah, it's very expensive. But a question for you, again, this is... Stay tuned, people. We'll talk about aero modeling again. But I'm, you know, whilst I've got a legend on the line, I'm going to ask this question. Having a brother that went through the whole flying uh, thing to try to get to commercial status and get, you know, make a living, earn a living out of it, there are pretty tough years in just trying to build your hours and all that kind of stuff. You know, he lived on a on site at a parachute joint up in Sydney, living in a caravan, and you know, just to rack up hours. What's it like in the heli scene once you've done your training to get to that commercial status, finding a job? Uh, it's tough. Um, these days it's tough. When I did it, it was it was still quite tough to do. I sort of had several interviews with joy flight mobs and stuff like that and then I got a, uh, a call to say that Lloyd Helicopters in Adelaide were looking for co-pilots Um I rang them. Uh, they said, look, you haven't got anything near the hours that we're chasing, but, look, we'll give you an interview. Uh, come across, have an interview. And um, so I did that, um, really hit it off with the ops manager and, um, you know, I, I, I said I'm a, I'm a hard worker. I don't know anything about flying. I've got a 100 hours helicopter time. Um, you know, I'll I'll do my very best to to do the job to the best of my ability. And um, I got a phone call a couple of days later to say um, your first endorsement's going to be a Bell Four One Two. So I did. Um, they said, "Look, you'll do you'll do two or three years offshore as a co-pilot, and then you'll get a uh, a posting to a single engine job." In those days, we had bases uh, in Queensland and Adelaide. Um, flying uh, tourist work and uh, media work in Adelaide, and um, I was only I was only offshore for about eighteen months, and um, position came up, and they said, you know, they gave me my choice of base, so I went to Queensland, Gladstone, and because it was doing the highest amount of flying, so we were doing seven hundred hours a year, um, which is quite quite amazing in a helicopter, um, in, in a tourist environment, and um, that was out to Heron Island, so. I did uh, a bit over two years up there and and then moved to Adelaide and flew all the media choppers there and Cooper Basin then and um, and then a multi-engine captaincy came up overseas in Thailand. So I snapped that up because, once again, they were doing 750 hours a year, multi-engine. Um, you come back from two years over there with 1,500 hours, multi-engine command and 3,000 single-engine command. Um, name your job 
Yeah, that's true. And but I didn't. I I just I worked for that company for 27 years, and they were fabulous. I ended up um, flying a you know 40 million dollar plus um, level three search and rescue helicopter out of Broome for them. Um, which is normally configured for 22 passengers, and we had a crew of five on it. Um, that was that was fabulous as well. But um, that's since gone by the wayside. Um, yeah. So, what's been your favourite helicopter to fly? Oh, look, I have a. I, I love the Squirrel. I got a little bit of time on the Squirrel, 250 hours on the Squirrel. I went to Antarctica with that for um, five months. Um, I'd probably have to say that the the last thing that I flew, I looked. I guess the four one two looked after me better than any helicopter ever has, and that was the air ambulance four one two, the Bell four one two. And I've got nearly nearly three thousand hours on those. So um, the four one two is just a, a fabulous, honest, um, built incredibly well helicopter. You know that does the job that it's it's designed to do. The the sports car of the fleet would be what I finished on, which is the Airbus H175, and it's it's got an amazing cockpit in it, and with um, with four massive big EFIS screens, um, no analog um, instruments at all in it. It's all electronic. Um, a fantastic flight control system, and it's fast. It carries sixteen passengers at ten thousand feet at one hundred and sixty-five knots. Yeah, so uh, the the 175 really was amazing to sort of finish my my heli flying career on it. We're, we're, I love the jet ranger. I love the jet ranger too. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> oh, I love a jet ranger. I've always said as a model helicopter, I'd love a jet ranger because they always look so nice. I've always had this. Just love the shape of the jet ranger. Always have. Yeah, yeah. You look. You can. I operated the jet ranger and the long ranger out in the in the Cooper Basin in the desert for a couple of years, and. Other than a little bit of greasing here and there, they'll just do a hundred hours before they need any more maintenance. You know, and there's there's no helicopters these days that really will do that, um, other than a jet ranger or a long ranger. All the rest are, require, um, you know, maintenance on schedule maintenance on 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 much shorter schedules. So now that you're retired, what's the plan? <laughs> um, look, I, I. I I help out at Lilydale Airport with a mate that's got a maintenance facility out there, so I give him a hand on um, servicing Rotax engines and stuff like that under his strict supervision. Um, so that's good, and I've got another small aircraft of my own, and the Christian Eagle at the moment's in for a annual inspection, and um, there's no full-size aircraft on the horizon. I'm pretty happy with with what I've got, and they, they take enough maintaining as it is. Um, but the model scene, um, yeah, I don't know. I've sort of, I'm, I'm pretty happy at the moment. Maybe a, uh, maybe a, you know, a, a vintage jet or something like that in the future, a big MIG or an F eighty six or something yeah. to that effect. Yeah. Did you see Philip Singh's big F eighty six? I did, oh. and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing it fly. Yeah, big big plane. Yeah, but no. yeah, it's a it's a big model. Well, actually, let's talk a bit about Wang Jets because you know Wang Jets has has been uh, by the time this airs. Uh, uh, what were your thoughts on this year's Wang Jet event? Oh, look, um, 
we can't seem to jag the weather. Yeah. Um, but the Sunday was fantastic weather-wise. There's no doubt about that. But I sort of look at it as well. Like when there's a bit of wind and a bit of rain and stuff like that, people mingle. You catch up with old friends. You tell a few stories. And um, socially, socially, it was the best Wang Jets I've ever been to. Yeah. Um, obviously, flying conditions-wise, no. But the Sunday, I don't think you could have asked for better conditions. Um, overcast and nil wind, you know, when you can jump out on that flight line and fly directly with the sun in your face and not be affected at 9 o'clock in the morning um, was fabulous and land either direction. So the Sunday conditions were awesome. The Wang Jet's great standard of flying, like I've said before. Mm. Really impressed with the everybody and the standard of flying and, you know, the amount of flights we had and so few, if any, Engine failures. I think there was a couple of engine failures, and that was due to being run out of fuel. Yeah, you, know, you can't blame an engine for stopping for that. No, that's true. But no, I, I think it was a great event this year. It was just like you said, very social. It's not just what happens at the field; it's what happens at dinner, and lots yeah. of stories to be told. And we've been, I've been introduced to a new, uh, new spirit, a new drink, mm. the the mini beer. Which uh, I didn't know existed until uh, David Gall put one in front of me, and then a few more followed after that. And let's just say that a, a few of the guys didn't handle their mini beers as well as others. Um, and I won't mention any names, but there are some uh, some big boys there that um, they must have been thirsty, yes. Damien. That's what I put down there. Must have been thirsty. You know, it's hard going being yeah. at a jet event all day, and you need a need a bit of a stiff drink after it. But uh, I can't wait, can't wait for next year. There is, I heard a rumour they might be moving it forward a, a couple of weeks. Okay. To try to get into that better weather zone in the you know, middle of March kind of thing, but we don't know. Yeah, look, I think it's it's still, you know, it's still a gamble. Whatever Always. time of year you have it in, you know, but, you know, sure enough as you do, the good weather will be two weeks later. Yeah, you, know. you never know. Do you? It's luck of the draw. Yeah. But anyway, there were plenty of flights were had, which was good to see. So it was, um, yeah, amazing event. Really, really enjoyed it. Well, have you got any models on the build at the moment? Uh, no, no. Um, all I've got on the, the bench down there at the moment is um, a big top and bottom cowl off a full-size Christen Eagle, which I'm just doing um, a tiny little bit of touch-up painting and that on. And it's been painted in a very, very brittle sort of two-pack in the early days and I'm just giving it a light rub back in some spots. I'm going to give that a bit of a dusting. So, um, no, there's 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 no sort of real models um, um, on the on the board at, at all at the moment. I've just finished a couple of Corsairs um, with radials in them, um, just small 60cc and three cylinder Sato radials, and they've been really good. Um, Are they for yourself or for somebody else? Uh, one's for me and one's for mate and. Um, yeah, we've had to do some modifications to the undercarriage, and um, just to sort of we couldn't get any reliability out of the out of the undercarriage that was supplied from China. So we've just modified that, and uh, looks like we've got it completely sorted now. So, uh, yeah, uh, where, where's your home club now? Um, home club's Yarra Valley Aero Modelers out past Yarra Glen. Yeah, good field there. Yeah, 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 fabulous field. I'm very lucky as well. I have my own sort of private full-size runway where my aircraft is stored. Uh, well, one of my aircraft is stored, and that's out a little bit further at Dixon's Creek. Um, 
it, it's 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 a fabulous and yeah get on very very well with the owner and I've had one of my aircraft based there for eleven years so we have a full model strip um, there also. Yeah. But cool. it's for private people only. Oh come <laughs> on! Why can't I'm private? <laughs> it's handy to have though if you've got something like yeah. that. It's, it's everybody's dream to have their own. Private model flying strip. I've always said when I win Powerball, the multi millions, I'm going to have a property in the country with my own asphalt strip. So I don't have to cut it all the time. And a nice yep. big hangar, which also is my building area that has access, you know, taxiway out. And I'll have a little, uh, you know, a, a, a guest house for my friends to come and stay by invite only. And we'll just sit there and fly off this strip. That's, that's, that's my dream. That'd be great. I should really see how I can make that happen. Maybe I need to buy more buy more tickets. I yeah. might be I might be going to Las Vegas for work in a few months. Maybe I'll just put all my money on red. See what happens. Yeah, I don't know whether I'd advise that, especially in Vegas. Come on, don't yeah. be so sensible, Damien. Loosen yeah. up. <laughs> um bucket list models. You got any bucket list models that you'd love to, you know, build before you uh leave us? Um not really. I sort of own everything that I, 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 I've loved over the years. And, I, you know, I love the Cub. I, I love the Yak. Um, the turbine glider's a bit out of left field, but it's just an awesome thing to fly, you know. It cruises around at 200 kilometres an hour and it's over 20-foot span. Um, the A-10's a keeper. Um, I don't really want to go any bigger with the models because then they don't fit in my van. Um, it doesn't fit in my van. It doesn't get built. And believe it or not, the half-scale Christian Eagle goes in the van. Yeah, <laughs> that would, um, yeah, that's pretty short yeah. fuselage. Only just, but um, yeah, it, it it goes in the van. Um, certainly, you don't have much room for much else in the back. But um, you know, and the setup's only about fifteen minutes. So, I, I guess I'm a little bit built out at the moment. With just you know, I want sort of a bit of a breather from it. Um, yeah. I have some other projects, but we won't talk about them here. <laughs> <laughs> now, we're up to the final question, which is a question that everybody can't wait to hear the answer to. And I'd really, I'm going to be interested to see what your answer is. And that right. question is, and this is actually, I haven't told you about this. Normally, I give people a heads up at the start before we start recording, but you don't have any notice, no advance warning. And that question is, what has been your favorite model? My favourite model. That's that's a very very easy question to answer. Oh. The A10. Yeah. 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 No. Oh. The A the A10 Warthog. You know? Now, what what size is that? Uh, Give us a bit of rundown of running gear and one sixth. One sixth. Yeah. Yeah. What size motor? Motors, two P80s. Two eighties. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wingspan? 3.2 metres. 3.3 metres. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It did look nice in the air. I was really impressed with it. So you haven't been tempted to get into a Sukhoi like uh, Mark Tatty's? No. um, You know, I've I've built a couple of them now and um, fabulous flying model. Mm. Fabulous flying model. But for me... I've got to be able to load and unload the model myself. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit of work. Um, and you simply cannot do that with an SU-30. Mm. It requires two people to, to load it in the car and unload it. 
you cannot handle that model by yourself. Yeah, that's good. For, even, right. even when I was building it, if there was nobody around to lift with me, I'd have to call a neighbour in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I yeah. like that you've got um, you know a lot of a lot of philosophies on different things, and you hold true to them, and you you stick to you know you've got your boundaries, which I like to see. Uh, because a lot of modelers don't have any boundaries. They go, oh, I need one of those. Or maybe you need to get one of those and maybe another one of those. Before you know it, you've got a hundred and something aeroplane sitting there that are just yeah. doing that, sitting there. Um, but, um, yeah, very, very sensible. Anyway, Damien, it's been a pleasure to get to know you more, have a chat, um, share your story. Really enjoyed it. We covered so, many, so much ground there uh, and that's what I love to do. And uh, thank you for joining me on the uh, Flat Out RC podcast. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. A big thank you to Damien Mould for joining me. It was great to get him onto the podcast. Learned a lot. Did a lot of sitting back and just took it all in and and uh, really enjoyed that. So I hope you did as well. And if you did, don't forget to subscribe to everything. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, the Flat Out RC YouTube channel. Get over there and have a look at some of the new content that we've put out there. Tell me whether you like it. Send me your message. Get on the flatoutrc.com.au, send me a message or via Facebook. Uh, and when you're at Facebook, don't forget to subscribe to the Flat Out RC Facebook page and the Instagram page, which is going boom. We're getting uh, more and more people following that. It's one of the biggest followed Australian era modeling instagram pages going around but it's taken a lot of effort that's a lot of photographs speaking of photographs plenty of photographs i've got from uh the uh wang jets event so they will be coming out over time i'll just drip feed them out via generally instagram so uh i'll be back next week um i think i've got a guest lined up could be a bit of fun but anyway stay tuned talk to you next week Bonnie and Clyde, a classic cliche. We're on the run. This is what we waited for.